Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called Hidden Angels. The premise behind this series is to highlight certain people in our congregation who have done amazing things for other people. I hope you enjoy. And our first reading comes from Matthew 2. It's the story of the wise men. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may go also and pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they had left, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 32 to 34. It starts, You shall rise before the aged and defer to the old, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So did everybody have a good summer? I don't want to say I didn't see most of you here uh, during the summer all the time, but it's okay. I'm glad you're back now. And we ended up finishing off a sermon series that if you were here for in the summer, is called Church and State. And the whole idea was we were looking at various lessons from the early church about how we were supposed to be the church in the 21st century. And literally, we plastered all of those lessons onto the ceiling of the church so that you could look up at them. Now, having finished this series, we've taken them all down, and that's all gone now. I will produce a devotional for that, for those of you who are here, so that you can read about those and keep them at the forefront of our minds, because that's important. And trying to keep these lessons at the forefront of our mind, we're going to be going into what I call a year of action. A year where we are going to stop talking as much as we have, and we're going to start doing. We're going to try to take a different look at how we can put our faith into action. And as a result, I have produced five different sermon series for this coming year. A year for me is September to September. So the coming year, five different sermon series. And these sermon series are going to inspire us to action. 
Sometimes they will inspire us to actually live differently. Other times to think differently. Other times it'll be things within our soul. But they all have one thing in common. And that is that I want you to see the world in a slightly different way so that you might live your faith out in the world differently than you do now. Now, our first sermon series that we're going to be doing for the year is called Hidden Angels. This sermon series is based around the premise that I have taken certain people from our congregation who I want to highlight. And so each sermon, you're going to begin with a pre-taped interview of that individual. And then from there, that's going to lay the foundation for the topic that we're going to discuss. I'll talk about it from a cultural, social, political perspective, and ultimately a spiritual perspective. Then from there, we're going to talk about how God expects us to live differently as a result of this information. Does that sound good to everybody? Okay, you guys are more silent than I'm used to you being, okay? So, all right, that's, that's the basis. Now, before I begin, it's very important that I provide you with a few caveats about this sermon series, okay? So, caveat number one. This sermon series was very, very hard for me to put together. And the reason why it was hard for me to put it together is because the people who were highlighting in these interviews, they didn't do the things that they're talking about for any kind of fame or glory. On the contrary... They did them because they thought it was the right thing to do. So most of these people were actually quite reluctant to get on screen and talk about it. In fact, I had to twist a lot of arms to get them out to actually do this. So nobody who you're going to be hearing from was like, yeah, get me in front of a camera so I can tell everybody how great I am. Like, nobody was like that, okay? So that's caveat number one. Number two is that by doing this series... I am by no means implying that these are the only people in our congregation that do good for other people, okay? I'm not implying that at all. There's lots of people in here. I know you all do good for all kinds of different people. The reason I'm highlighting them is because I heard about the things they were doing, and I felt that it was something that I could put into a sermon. On top of that, a lot of the people who I heard about, they didn't tell me about what they were doing. I heard about it second or third hand. So if you hear something in one of these sermons that I'm preaching, and you think, you know what, I had something really good that would have worked right there, please don't hesitate to come and tell me about it. I would love to hear. The only reason I didn't ask you is because I didn't know. All right, third caveat. There are 11 sermons in this sermon series. We're going to be talking about a lot of different topics as we go through them. I do not expect that all of these sermons and all of these topics are going to resonate with you all the time. There will be some that I hope that you will come away with and say, yeah, that really inspired me to change my life and to think differently. But I hope that you will hear one of these, just one of the 11, and and that means you have to be here for all 11, right? Like you can't not come to them. So I'm hoping that one of the 11 you'll hear and you'll say, you know what? I've always wanted to do something with that and I'm gonna make the time and I'm gonna give the resources to that particular cause. Does that sound good? All right, have I put enough caveats in? All right, excellent. All right, so you want to get started? All right, let's turn to our first interview. Yeah, my name is George Drost, and uh, I have been a member as as well as my wife for decades at First Press.
We've got a story that really connects up with uh, the Presbyterian Church. I happen to be uh, a uh, displaced person coming to the United States in 1950. And that was a result of a communist takeover in the country I was born in, the Czech Republic. Our sponsoring church was Ravenswood Presbyterian Church. And the uh, young uh, assistant pastor there was Leon Herring, who uh, ended up uh, in his, uh, till his retirement, an, an assistant uh, or associate pastor at First Presbyterian here in Arlington Heights. Uh, in February of last year, um, it came to my attention through Alex that there was a need to support a family that uh, had some unusual circumstances, and uh, this involved a Syrian uh, asylum seeker. He uh, gained asylum along with his three uh, uh, young sons, and he uh, left his wife and his daughter uh, behind who was uh, in the United Arab Emirates on a visa. And so fast forward, there's an executive order issued by the President of the United States that says that people from certain selected countries, including Syria, aren't coming into the United States. And so this created quite a concern of having families that were separated. And again, my own situation going back decades, we, uh, we were a separated family as well. And I certainly felt a, a commitment, a passion to see what I could do. So uh, the effort was to get, uh, a, uh, an, uh, get some support for Marwan and his, his family through uh, a few of the congressional offices and to see if there was any way to speed up the administrative process uh, for uh, Marwan's family. We have to be vigil. We can't always look at our own uh, comfort. Uh, sometimes we have to get off our duff and uh, raise a voice. Uh, as a church member at First Pres and also as a Christian, I think that we uh, need to recognize what our responsibilities are, and that is to be a welcoming uh, community. And um, I think biblically, uh, you can't pick and choose who you, whom your friends are, but you have to reach out to people that are in need. So I want to thank George for being willing to be interviewed. He was very reluctant to do that, so if you see him, say thank you, because it was nice of him to be able to come in and do that for us. We're going to get back to Marwan's family and his story a little bit later on in this sermon, but for now, I want to focus on the topic at hand, which is how God calls us as Christians to be there and welcome the stranger. This comes at a particularly important time in our world because early 2018, the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, released a report. And in that report, he said that there are currently 65.3 million displaced people around the world right now. Now these people, they have been displaced for a variety of different reasons, but they all have something similar at their core. And that is that these people find themselves in circumstances where it is untenable for them to stay in their present situation because it is unsafe. And so their only other option is to abandon their homes and flee elsewhere to find safety in another place. Now in reading this report, something that really stuck out to me is that the UNHCR stated 
that there are more people right now in 2018 who've had to flee their homes because of violence and persecution than at any other time since the UNHCR was keeping records. Now that is shocking and that is scary. Now 65.3 million, is that an easy number to wrap your mind around? No, it is not. It is very, very hard, but I think it is in our best interest to attempt to wrap our minds around it, to appreciate what it's like to be in the shoes of these people. So here's what I need you to do for me. I want you to imagine that you are at home. You are asleep in your bed and it's the middle of the night. Can you put yourself there for me, please? All right. Now, it's a weekday. You're going to be getting up in the morning to go about your daily routine. And about one o'clock in the morning, you wake to the sound of a gunshot. You get out of your bed and you go to your window and you look outside to see what's happening. There's nobody out there, you don't see anything. But you can hear that off in the distance, there's a crowd of some sort. And you can hear that the gunshots are getting closer and louder. Now you look across the way and you can see that one of your neighbors is actually looking out of their window as well. Their lights aren't on, just like your lights are not on because you don't want to alert anybody that you're home. But you're both watching. Now your heart begins to thump a little louder because you can see off in the distance that this crowd, this mob, if you will, is getting closer to your neighborhood. In fact, their trajectory is they're going to come right into it. And from what you can tell, from what you can see, they are carrying weapons, and they number about four or 500. Now, you try to calm yourself by thinking about the fact that you could always call the police, and they'll come and protect you. But as this mob gets closer and closer, you begin to see that many of the police officers on whom you depend and trust they are part of this crowd, and that they haven't even bothered to take off their uniforms. When they're about 300 yards from their house, they start to break apart into groups of 10 and 20. They start breaking down people's doors, they turn on the lights, they go in, they tear people from their beds, and they bring them out onto the sidewalk. And certain people, they force them to kneel down in the streets. And as you're watching, you recoil backwards because you hear a pop. And when you come back up, you look outside and you can see that one of your neighbors is laying face down in the street. And that's when your heart sinks into your stomach because you know that the life you've been living is over and nothing will ever be the same. Whatever social order you have known, it's gone. So immediately, your brain clicks into survival mode, and you know that if you are going to make it through the night, you need to get out of your house, and you need to hide. So, very, very quickly, you start to go, you make your bed, because you don't want anybody to be able to tell that you've been there. If they come inside, you want them to think that you weren't there over the night. Then, you grab valuables, you grab cash, you grab your passport, you grab a few articles of clothing, and you make your way outside out the back, silently, 
and then you go hide in a shadowy, nondescript place. And not a moment too soon, because when you turn around and look back, you can see that the lights are coming on in your windows. And you see a group of men who are scouring your house looking for any sign of your presence. They're clearly going through all of your belongings. They're turning things over. They're shining flashlights out. They can't find you. Now, your immediate, immediate concern is that you want to wait them out until this mob of people leaves your neighborhood so that you can get up and run in the other direction. Your goal is to get to a friend's house. You only have a few hours until daylight, and you know you need to get there before the sun comes up. The time comes, you get up, and you start to move. Now, your hope is that you can go from house to house, that once you get there, you'll stay the day, and then in the evening, you're going to go to another house and another. You want to make it to a port so that you can get on a boat and go to a country that might provide you with refuge. So you get to your friend's house, you knock on the door, they come down, they open, and they let you in. And you stay there, and you start the process, and over weeks and months, thanks to the help of friends and strangers you don't even know, you eventually make your way to a port. And with the last of your money, you purchase a ticket for a boat that is going to a foreign country. You don't have a visa, you don't have permission to enter into their country, your only hope is that when you get there, you might be shown mercy. Now, this story that I have just told you, it could be applied to any number of situations around the world today. You could apply it to people who are living in Syria, Myanmar, Sudan, Congo, Yemen, Venezuela, just to name a few. But this story that I have told you, it didn't happen today. It's not modern. The story that I told you happened 80 years ago in Germany on November 9th and 10th of 1938. This is better known as Kristallnacht, or the night of broken glass. This was a night when German Nazi soldiers flooded the streets, they went through, and they terrorized the Jewish population that was living in Germany at the time. This photo that you see right here, this was taken the day after November 10th. They burned down most of the synagogues that were there in the country. One of the people who was alive at that time, his name was Manfred Fink. And he was not alone. He was with his wife, Hertha, and his son, Michael. And the story that I told you is really their story. It's very similar to what they went through. And they eventually got made their way from Germany all the way to the Netherlands, where they boarded a, a boat, the MS St. Louis. The MS St. Louis was chartered for Cuba. There were 937 passengers aboard this particular boat, almost all of whom were Jews who were fleeing from the Holocaust. Now, the goal was to get on this boat, go to Cuba, and then get off and then apply for visas to come to the United States. So the MS St. Louis, it leaves the Netherlands, it goes down, it gets to port in Cuba on May 27th, 1939. But when they get there, the Cuban government rescinds all of the visas that they had granted to the passengers on board. Only 28 people were allowed off of the ship. Now, most of you in here, I would assume, probably have never heard of the MS St. Louis before. But at the time, you have to realize that 
Everybody heard about it because it was being broadcast in newspapers all over America. This was well known that there was a boat, and this is actually, this picture you see right here is actually when they are in Cuba, they're waiting to, to try to get off of the ship. Now, everybody in America knew about this, and they knew that these Jews were fleeing the Nazis. When it became clear that the Cuban government was not going to allow them to disembark from the ship, the ship pulled out and made its way over to the American coastline. In fact, they were so close to the American coast at one point, they were next to Miami, they could see the lights in the evening. Now, several of the passengers, they ended up sending a cable to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt asking for some kind of amnesty. But they never heard anything back. And some of them sent cables to the State Department asking for their help. And this is what the State Department sent back to them. It said, all passengers must await their turns on the waiting list and qualify for and obtain immigration visas before they may be admissible into the United States. Now, FDR, he knew quite well that by sending these people away, that they were going to be killed. And he very easily could have issued an executive order allowing these people into our country, but he chose to do nothing. And historians, they will try to kind of pad this by saying, well, it was the 1930s, and in the 1930s in America, there was a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. And therefore, even though, yes, he made this decision, it was in keeping with the thinking of the time. But I have to say, I look at this situation, and I think that our country's actions in this particular circumstance is reprehensible. Once they realized that the United States wasn't going to do anything for them, they had to turn around and start heading back towards the Netherlands. And what they did was they started cabling different countries, asking, can you take these people? And several countries stepped up to the plate. So England, they stepped up. They took a little bit over 100. Here, you're going to see over off to the side, this is when they actually landed in Antwerp, in Belgium. And they took several hundred people also. But not all of them were able to find a place to go. And the Finks were among those people. And so eventually they did have to go back to the Netherlands. And when they got there, the Fink family was arrested by Nazi soldiers. Manfred, he was sent to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. If you know anything about Bergen-Belsen, it's one of the worst camps next to Auschwitz in the entire war. He was killed, murdered. His wife and his son, they were sent to a different concentration camp. And amazingly, they were able to survive the war, which is pretty incredible given that they had to remain in those camps for six years, but they made it through. Now, the reason why I've taken the time to tell you this story is that even though it's 80 years old, I feel like the same confluence of circumstances is facing us today. Here we are in a world with 65.3 million refugees, and we here in the United States are generally not in favor of increasing the number of immigrants who we allowed into our country. Polls show that around 73% of Americans feel we need to keep immigration levels where they are 
or we need to decrease them. And yet, if you were one of those 65.3 million people, if you were in those same circumstances, you would be praying that someone would have the heart to let you in, to give you a second chance at life. In our scripture that we read this morning, it says, when an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is a direct command from God that when you have a foreigner living among you, that you are to treat them as one of your own because the Israelites at one time, they were foreigners in a foreign land. Now, amazingly enough, this is the same basis on which our country was founded following the Civil War in the United States. Once we went through the abolition of slavery, this country truly became a place where all people could come from all over the world to seek a new life. So I ask you, what changed? What changed? When did we go from a country that was composed predominantly of Christians to a country that forgot about the very values that created this place? Well, if you want to know the answer to that question, the answer is found on May 27, 1939, and the events surrounding that event. So, why is it that the Cuban government and FDR were not allowed, allowing these people to come ashore? Because there was a fear of the Jews. There was a fear that by allowing these people in our borders, that they would harm our country. They would take our jobs. They would take our land. They would dilute our culture. It didn't matter that by sending these people back to where they came from, that they would be murdered. That didn't matter. What mattered is that I need to protect what's mine, and by allowing these people in, I feel threatened. So what changed in this country? What changed is our fear of the other, the fear of the unknown. But you want to know what God calls us to do? God calls us to let go of that fear. God calls us to welcome the stranger. God calls us to put ourselves in their shoes and ask the question, what would I want you to do for me if I was in the same situation? Indeed, this foundation of welcoming the stranger into our midst, it is so elemental to what we believe in the Christian faith that it's actually part of Jesus' story. What did you hear Judy read this morning? What did she read about? She read about... When Jesus was first born, the family had to flee from Galilee down into Egypt because King Herod, he wanted to commit infanticide. He wanted to kill all of the newborn babies to eliminate any threat to the throne. They went to Egypt as refugees. So I pose a question to you. If Jesus and his family showed up at your door seeking refuge, would you welcome them in? Of course you would, right? Because it's Jesus. <laughs> Am I wrong? But Jesus says in Matthew 25, 
what you have done for the least of my brothers and sisters. It is as if you have done it for me. When Marwan and his family, Marwan and his sons, came to the United States from Syria, they were fleeing the violence in their hometown of Hama. Now, Hama, which you can see right there at the bottom, is located about 85 miles away from Aleppo. And if you know anything about Aleppo, that is where some of the most serious fighting in the Syrian civil war took place. It was horrible. Now, you also heard George in this. He talked about how when Marwan and his sons came here, they were separated from Marwan's wife, Lama, and his daughter, Maria. They got stuck in the United Arab Emirates, and they were trying to get visas to come to the United States. Now, it was hard because their visas in the United Arab Emirates had actually run out, and so they were threatening to be sent back to Syria, which would have been horrible. And they were having trouble getting the visas here. So they turned to two Catholic orders here in the United States. Marwan sought the help of two orders. So the Viatorians are one, and the Sisters of the Living Word are the other. We have a relationship in this church with both of those Catholic orders. And it's thanks to the Sisters of the Living Word that Marwan and his family started coming to our Wednesday night family night dinners. And some of you have probably seen them there. In fact, the two youngest sons, Faras and Elias, they still come to family night every single week. In fact, Faras, he went on the middle school mission trip with TC, and he's Muslim. (laughs) And the fact that their family are practicing Muslims, it doesn't make any difference to them or to us. And I remember in the midst of all of this, when they were separated from each other, I went up to Faras one evening at family night. And I said to him, I said, you know, don't worry. One day, you'll be back with your mom again. And he looked at me and he said, no, I'm never going to see her again. And that broke my heart. And frankly, I didn't know what to do. Had no idea. But thankfully, George Dross did. He knew what to do in that situation. Thanks to George and a number of other people, Marwan's family was reunited on April 7, 2017. Now, the reason why he did this is because, as he said in the video, he was a displaced person. He was a person who lived in the Czech Republic when the communists came in. They had to come here in 1950. And while he was coming over, his family was separated. And so when he heard about what was happening, when he heard about what was happening with Marwan, he said, you know what? I have to do something about that because he knew what it was like. So I pose the question to you again in a slightly different way. If Marwan and his family came to your doorstep seeking refuge, would you let them in? Now, I would think, like to think, that the answer for most of you in here would be yes. But that's because we know who they are and we know their story. The harder thing that Jesus asks of us is to say yes when we don't know who they are 
and we don't know their story. That's hard. Now, I'm not trying to sit here and say that you should go out from here this morning and find a refugee somewhere and take them into your home. You can if you want to. That would be awesome if you wanted to actually do that. But that's not what I'm saying today. What I'm saying is this. There are strangers all around us. People who are struggling and in need. God is calling us to release our fear of the other, to release our fear of the unknown. God is calling us to get to know their stories, to ask them, what have you been through? To put ourselves in their shoes and pose the question, what would I want you to do for me if our roles were reversed? We all can't do what George did for Marwan, but in our own ways, we can make a big difference in the lives of the strangers who are in our midst. So here's how I want to end today, and I want you to think about this. Right now, Jesus is knocking at the door. The question is, are you going to answer? Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.